Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Their Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. We welcome the stories and advice that help us as parents, carers, educators, and friends to instill the confidence and drive in girls to become the change makers that the world world really needs. On this episode of Race Her Up, my guest is behavioural and data scientist, Professor Pragya Agarwal. Everything from the clothes for boys and girls, the colours that are available to them, the books, they perpetuate some of these biases so much. Beyond the systemic and structural issues that we have to address as society, we have to also reflect on our own personal biases and how we are enabling them. Professor Agarwal's work on diversity, equality and unconscious bias, as well as her life as a parent, led her to write Motherhood, in which she examines society's obsession with the female body from the viewpoint of a woman and a mother. In her latest book, Hysterical, she takes a deep dive into the concept of gendered emotions and discovers the truth about whether men and women really do experience feelings differently. From the GDST, this is Radar Up, and this is Professor Pragya Agarwal. And I think again, one of I the thought what's going through her was that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. <laughs> Razor Up. Professor Pragya Agarwal, welcome to Raise Her Up. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Cathy. I've been really, really excited to speak to you um, because I have really enjoyed your most recent book, um, Hysterical. As I was just saying to you before we started recording, it has made me feel really kind of seen and vindicated, but also utterly furious and utter despair as well. Is is that the kind of general feedback that you've had? Yes, I, I was hoping that that would be the reaction to it. I do think that because it's a book about emotions and it's a book about some of the emotions that are stigmatized sometimes or not acceptable, I was hoping that it would intrigue people, but also make them reflect and think, um, maybe galvanize them to change things as well. And anger could be a galvanizing emotion so much as sadness or grief can be as well. Let me ask you, how did you get into this field? You were the first woman and the first woman of colour to be appointed in the engineering department at UCL. Talk us through your journey. Yeah, where do I start the journey? So (laughs) um, I did a PhD at Nottingham. And um, it was a really interdisciplinary PhD. So although it was based in geography, it was kind of overlapping cognitive science and psychology, spatial data science, knowledge representation, computer science, everything kind of overlapping to think about how we make sense of places around us and how we build them into our computer models. But I also was interested in how different perspectives are not incorporated in computational models. And so a lot of my research after that was really interested in people, human computer interaction and how we make personalized models, how some people are not represented. And that's how I got really interested in thinking about diversity and inclusivity and how a lot of our systems are not inclusive, but a lot of our structures and institutions are not inclusive either. So yes, um, I had a Leverhulme Fellowship after my PhD, which I was at Computer Science Department in Leeds. And then I got a lectureship, which is an assistant professorship at UCL and the engineering department. And I was the first woman, but also the first person of color that appointed to this position. I found that being in this position was challenging because there was no precedent to it. And I was also a single parent. That gave me an opportunity to really think about how different students fit in, how they felt belonged, how they saw representation 
And I had numerous conversations with young South Asian brown women who came to me to talk about um, their challenges, barriers, opportunities. So it was an interesting time. I hope that your daughters appreciate everything that you've achieved so far. I don't imagine they do. They tend not to, do they? (laughs) Well, um, I just hope that I've given them the kind of uh, role model that they can look up to and say that I'm not just talking the talk, but also walking the walk. I'm sure as a parent, I've made mistakes, which all parents do. But I just hope that they see this as an opportunity for them to create change in the world wherever they are and whatever they are doing. Oh, absolutely. What, what more could we want um, for our kids, I think? Um, let's let's go back to what you were saying about unconscious bias. Um, you, when we first chatted about this, you talked about how we transfer bias through our words. And by definition, we're not aware of this. So it's important to look at what the data tells us. And your book, Wish We Knew What to Say, came out in October 2020, didn't it? After that really seminal and awful moment of George Floyd's murder. Um, two years on, What does the data tell us? Are we making progress in tackling our unconscious bias? It's been a really um, challenging and interesting time. And I use those words quite carefully because interesting in the sense of that it's been interesting to see how our biases play out in the social, political, cultural domain, really visibly, uh, even our implicit biases and how we've gone back and forth from acknowledging our biases and saying that everybody should have bias training. Uh, And as a disclaimer, I don't agree that we can be trained out of unconscious biases, but From that to this backlash against the notion of biases, that we even have any biases or prejudices and that we should be talking about them. And then there's been a huge backlash against any kind of um, what is perceived as liberal viewpoints or woke viewpoints that are uh, bandied around in the media by politicians as well. So we've seen a rise of partisan politics that have cashed on to some of these debates and discussions. I would like to say that there's been a lot of change, but the only change I can really see is that some of these conversations have come out in open and that we are talking about them more openly. So for the instance, we are talking about the fact that racism is not something that just happens in the US or in anywhere else, but it's actually a very much a reality for minority ethnic communities here in this country as well. Uh, we were we used to pride ourselves on our multiculturalism and just being multicultural doesn't or diverse doesn't mean that we are inclusive as well. We've also talked about expanding the notion of inclusivity. So we are talking about more diverse kind of people with not just racism or sexism, but also disability. We're having more conversations around even um, invisible illnesses. We are having more conversations around and pandemic was a huge turning point. I think even the virus affects different people differently based on our social and cultural context. So where we are, where we live, who we are, um, what we look like, all those kind of things affect how much we suffered during the pandemic, each of us. Some of us had more privileges than the others. That has opened up the conversation. Um, Even though they're talking more openly about it, we have to at some point start making concrete changes and take actions. I'm concerned at times that whether we are making any concrete changes, whether any real changes are going to happen in society. But I do think that we need to keep talking about it and listening to diverse stories as much as possible. You you talk about intersectionality as an Indian woman, and you've mentioned your own experiences of racism and views around how organisations seeking to address the gender pay gap end up only elevating white women. Now, we are obviously a group of of 25 girls schools and, uh, you know, elevating girls of all backgrounds is of paramount importance to us. So tell us a bit more about, about your experience of this and about your view. 
Yeah, I, I, as you say, again, I focus a lot on intersectionality because we have to take our intersectional identities into account because the kind of biases or prejudices or barriers that we face, implicit or explicit, depend very much into on the kind of different identities we had. We are not one single identity. Neither of us are. We are not one homogeneous identity. So I'm a woman, but I'm also a brown woman. Uh, I'm a cisgender. All those kind of things impact how I'm perceived by others, but my place in society and what privileges I hold as well. So while each of us might encounter some biases based on a class, disability, race, gender, all those kind of things, we also have certain privileges compared to other people. So as a woman, yes, we have certain common experiences and we experience the same levels of oppression or same kind of misogyny or uh, effects of patriarchy. But not all of us are not just one homogeneous entity. We are different kinds of women depending on, as again, as a class and our race, our ethnicity, our economic context, um, our accent. So as a girls' school, I do think that, yes, it's really important to empower women, but we also have to take into account that even when we provide the same opportunities to all the young women in the same way, we have to move away from this myth of meritocracy that if we provide the same opportunity, all of them can reach the same level or achieve the same thing. Because that can make people feel that if I'm being given this opportunity, I should first be grateful to it. And secondly, I should be able to achieve what the other person has achieved. If we are all starting from the same starting point in a race, but a few of us are carrying different backpacks and different backpacks are heavier to a different extent, we are not going to be running at the same pace or reach the finish line at the same time. So we have these these legacies of oppression and historic legacies of oppression and our, our context that put barriers in our way. And so I think that is why it's so important to talk about intersectionality and look at it. Thank you very much for a brilliant segue into your forthcoming fantastic book, uh, Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions. If there's ever an example of this kind of treating people as a homogenous entity, it is surely the idea that as women and as men, we all have the same lived experience and we all experience our, our emotions in the same way. So where did the idea or the motivation come from for this book? I remember writing the proposal for this in a small hotel room in London in January 2020. Um, I was attending a writing course, but it wasn't, of course, the first time that I've thought about how emotions impact us and how people perceive us, depending on what gender we are and who we are and how we express it and how we they assign emotions to us. And I'd been reading about this for a long time. And I'd been looking at emotional technologies for a long time as well, about how emotions get incorporated into technologies. And there was a big discussion happening in human-computer interaction. But I remember coming back to my hotel room that evening and suddenly thinking, this is a book that I really want to write. And there are these kind of magical moments that happen where everything comes together. And I sat down and I wrote this proposal, all the research, all the reading that I'd done kind of condensed into this idea that I thought was amazing. And luckily, my editor and my agent thought that as well. <laughs> yeah, see, it is an amazing idea. Isn't it wonderful sometimes when the alchemy is just right and it just flows out of you? On each episode of Raise Her Up, we are joined by a member of our GDST community who gives their perspective on the matter at hand. And this week, I'm joined by Jo Sharrock, who is head at Shrewsbury High School for Girls. 
So Joel, we are speaking to Professor Pragya Agarwal, who has written her fantastic book, Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions. And she speaks in a lot of detail about how and why women and men are judged differently for expressing the same emotions. I know you've done a lot of work at your school about empowering girls to embrace who they are and turn that into their own kind of superpower, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, from the moment girls arrive with us in reception, we start working to counter the, the very stereotype that Professor Agarwal is, is addressing, really. I think it's probably one of the most insidious and limiting stereotypes, this idea that girls have certain emotions, are more emotional, less rational as a result, and that somehow there are legitimate emotions that, that girls are maybe even encouraged to express as opposed to the emotions they're really feeling. You know, I think one of the most important things we do is to counter stereotype threat. And that's one of the greatest threats to a girl growing up happy, confident, comfortable in her own skin. So when they're younger, junior age children, we actually don't explicitly want to mention the stereotype because, you know, there's a lot of studies that show that girls are more likely to succumb to a stereotype if they know that it exists. So with junior pupils, it's actually about making sure they never learn these harmful behaviours. So, for example, normalising the emotions they feel. There's a brilliant programme called Fireworks in My Tummy. It's really about helping a child recognise their emotions, normalising it, getting them to own it, if you will, and then helping them to manage it, rather than repressing it the first time that they express anger or frustration, for example. So I think at junior age, it's very important that we're actually trying to stop that harmful behaviour developing in the first place. As a child grows up and they get to senior school, I think they're much more susceptible perhaps to external influence and it's at that point that we will very explicitly confront the, the stereotype. We do that in a number of ways. There's an incredible advert um, with Serena Williams narrating to address the unfairness in sports, how women are judged for their tears, their anger and their passion and called crazy um, as a result. And we show the girls that and we explore you know, their response to it and we discuss the stereotype. So we can do very explicit things, but I think it's also about that modelling of behaviour. So we will try and show them examples of leaders, for example, using their emotions very positively and powerfully, not suppressing them, but rather channeling them into powerful ends. So you're a scientist, your work is evidence-based. What does the data tell us about how men and women and indeed girls and boys experience emotion? A lot of our expectations and perceptions of how we experience and how we um, express our emotions are, are dependent on this idea of these binary ideas of, of gender. So I look in the book from historic times, looking at the Greek, ancient Greek and Romans and scriptures and, and how they have started this idea. And then it's been perpetuated over the ages through Middle Ages and through the notion of hysteria and hysterical, where the title comes from. And, and 
through medical domain as well, how it's very much set in our medical textbooks that there are some uh, masculine and feminine norms such as passiveness or compassion or nurturing or uh, all those kind of things are feminine attributes while authoritativeness or dominance are masculine attributes. And it's very much underpinned by this idea that there's a hierarchy in a society where men are superior and women are inferior. That is why over time we've seen that men had dominated the political domain. And there was these ideas and that said that actually women's emotions give them a weakness. So this, it was always seen as a weakness. The idea that women were more emotional and that emotions were a weakness. And this also was set in this kind of binary notion of rationality versus emotionality. So even now we see some of the thinkers that I used to admire <laughs> a lot before, but now reading their work, I, I'm actually skeptical about that. Um, they propose this idea that we need to all think rationally, that rationality is our way pro- forward, that it's a way for human progress. And so emotions have always been dismissed as inferior for a very long time. Actually, interestingly, even in scientific domain, emotions, the study of emotions wasn't taken seriously until about 50, 60 years ago. It was seen as something that was self-indulgent and it was not scientific or rigorous enough or evidence-based enough. <laughs> I wonder if it was men that came up with that idea. <laughs> it, it, the, the thing is that because of this hierarchy, we have to think about who has had power and privilege in our society for a very long time, who had the resources and the power to write books and to put out books. And so I discuss in my book about how women didn't have the resources to write books. And so a lot of their um, opinions we can garner or gather through the letters they wrote to each other or the tapestry they embroidered. They expressed their emotions, but also their opinions and thoughts in these different ways, in these creative outlets, because creativity is seen as something that was uh, specific to women is a feminine attribute. Mm. But if you look at the brains, we find that there's actually not a difference between men and women brains. And that's a myth that's also uh, underpinned a lot of scientific research and that we keep hearing that that men and women are very different. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And so all these kind of myths have been created that was very much underpinned by the idea that men have these larger parts of the brain that are involved in spatial activity and that they can carry out spatial activity and spatial analysis. So they're good at science and maths. But we now find that there's not one clear part of the brain that engages in these activities. It happens through an interconnection of different parts. But also we find that actually in between groups, so between a group of women, there might be more differences in their brains than between men and women. If actually there is no difference in our brains, that that means the way we experience emotions cannot be different. So a lot of it is culturally conditioned. I find it just um, mind-boggling sometimes, especially when we talk about leadership, for example. People talk about kind of feminine qualities and about how sensitivity is a kind of a, a, a woman's superpower when it comes to business. And I think, how can people still talk like that? How can people still say that? And, and hearing you from a data perspective and like you know, evidence-based perspective saying that there is literally no difference between brains can you get out on the road with a loud hailer, please, Pragya? And can you just be shouting this from the rooftops? <laughs> Let's do this, Cathy. <laughs> yeah, can we? And can I can I ask you as well? Do you see your research playing out around you? Because when I was reading your book, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial was was happening, and the bile that was on social media at the same time. Your book seemed to be just bearing out everything that was being done to Amber Heard. 
regardless of what you feel about what will happen in that relationship, the fact that, you know, women getting angry is seen as being vindictive and out of control. Um, and that men are never referred to as fiery, lippy, feisty, bitchy, hormonal. And I'm, I'm quoting from your, your book there. It also made me think about, you know, the David Cameron classic, you know, calm down, dear, in Parliament. Um, and the, you know, oh, come on, smile, love, it might never happen. Do you not kind of leave the house and think, yep, I've written about that. Yep. Yes, I do think that. And it happens every day. And I feel like, it is a bit exhausting to keep pointing it out at times. And at times I get quite angry and and, <laughs> and think that I need to point it out because uh, some of us have to. Um, yes, I think it has happened so much recently. Even my publishers are saying, did you actually know this was going to happen before you wrote the book? And I was like, no, I, <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see <laughs> But yeah, that trial that you mentioned, the idea that, that she was vilified so much. And even the jury members said that we couldn't trust her testimony because she cried one moment and then she wasn't crying and they were, she was smiling. So it showed us, first of all, how much we judge other people based on the way they express their emotions. And we assume that that is the emotion they're experiencing as well. In the book, I talk about how there are display rules and feeling rules, and we all have to conform to these display and feeling rules. Otherwise, we are penalized. So there are some expectations from women about the kind of way that we should express our emotions. And if we don't do that, we are called it difficult women, or as you all the other words that you've just read out from the book as well. And the women are expected more to create comfort for other people around them by expressing emotions in a moderated way or modulating their extreme emotions. They are supposed to create comfort for other people because that's a feminine attribute to do. And all those kind of things about how some of these emotions like anger are a status emotion. So women are not expected to have the status emotion because they are not higher up in the hierarchy. And that, again, we can look at it intersectionally about trans women and we can look at it black and brown women and how different women would have different privileges in terms of what emotions they can express and how they express it. So, yes, the trial was really a, a stark example of how women have been judged for a long time. There's a whole lot of research that at the moment I'm looking at about how domestic violence victims are supposed or expected to behave. What I talk about in the book has been played out in many different ways. And when uh, one of the head teachers said that girls just don't like to take physics because they don't enjoy it, while boys do. And oh, again, yes. <laughs> again, that is a very much based, grounded in this kind of binary notion that boys are a certain way and girls are a certain way. And we have to move away from it because, as I say, these implicit words also create a stereotype threat for girls and women who fear being stereotyped if they step into a domain which is not traditionally feminine or suitable for women, but and what we sometimes call imposter syndrome. Um, but also they can people can internalize these views about themselves. So we know from research that girls as young as nine can start believing that science and maths is not for them and that they would not be as good at it. So they are not as enthusiastic or encouraged to take up these subjects. And so we start seeing this STEM gap that we, we have been talking about for a long time. But we have we cannot address that STEM gap at an older age. We have to start addressing how 
words and actions from a very young age, even from the moment the child is born, the toys that are on offers to us, the books they read, the way the parents bring them up, all those kind of things affect these perceptions as well. I did a, a master's in psychology and education a few years ago. And as part of that, I did a study of the kind of fairies books and the Let Toys Be Toys campaign. And in the fairies books, within kind of two pages, the fairies were all sparkly and, and pretty. And the goblins who kept coming and stealing all the fairies' powers were all boys. And I realized that these books had been in my house for years without making that connection. And I would say that I am fairly aware of these things and fairly proactive about wanting to overcome them. So it is so embedded in our society and culture like a smog. We are culturally conditioned sometimes and we don't realize. So for instance, in the book, I talk about a research project which looked at parents who are bringing up boys and girls. And as younger, from as young as six months old, they are using different kind of words for boys and girls. These are parents who are very fair-minded, who believe in equality, who believe in gender equality. They perceive girls to be softer and they're more careful with girls taking risks while boys are daredevils and they can take risks and they can have more adventures and they can play rough and and tumble and all those kind of things and the kind of toys that are on offer to us and the words they use were very different as well. How can we change these attitudes to these uh, gender responses to emotions? Because as you say, they're so socially entrenched now. And, it, and you know, and it comes at the expense of boys too, you know, boys feeling that they can't cry, the levels of suicide for men, for example, because of this pressure to be kind of manly and to be the providers and to be the protectors and to live up to really unrealistic expectations. Where to start, Pragya? First of all, acknowledgement that this is happening is very important. And men have to be part of this conversation because, as you say, these things disadvantage not just women, but also men, because everybody gets put in a box and everybody is constrained by what they can do and not do. And they have to conform to these kind of expectations and norms. And we know about toxic masculinity and how it disadvantages men. And you talked about the mental health crisis in men. So we have to talk about how Talking about equality is good for everybody, not just for people who are currently being oppressed or who are marginalized. But what happens is people who have power or have had privilege throughout time can can feel threatened by these conversations and discussions because they might feel that they're going to lose the inherent power that they've held for a very long time and that could change their status quo in society. And then we have to acknowledge that everything from the clothes for boys and girls from a young age, the slogans that are written on them, the colors that are available to them, the books that show that a boy is adventurous while the girls are helplessly looking for help, they perpetuate some of these biases so much. In fact, when you mention the fairy tales as a sidebar, there's, there's a really good book that I bought for my children called Gender Swapped Fairy Tales. These notions of masculinity and femininity are challenged when you read these gender swapped fairy tales. So once we start doing this, then we have to start thinking about beyond the systemic and structural issues that we have to address as society, we have to also reflect on our own personal biases and how we are enabling them as well. What kind of words do we use around boys and girls? Are we assuming that girls are not able to do certain things because of their specific gender? Are we assuming that boys should be able to do certain things because they are boys? Are boys being brought up with a certain sense of entitlement without a conversation of consent, without a conversation of respect, without a conversation about their own privilege and how they can be a good ally? We talk so much about empowering our girls and raising our girls in a certain way, but we also have to talk about how we raise our boys to be part of this conversation as well. 
One part of your book that I found really interesting was the cultural and social attitudes towards crying and and crying being linked to honour in Hindu religion, for example. I found that fascinating. Do you notice a difference in the way that Brits respond to emotions, to your experience in your native India? How does the kind of British approach to how we analyse and handle emotion compare on average with perhaps other attitudes across the globe? I grew up in a family where we show our emotions very openly. My dad used to cry at the drop of a hat. He would get emotional. He would also get angry quite a lot, but he would also be very sensitive about lots of things and and the way he talked to us. So we were brought up to kind of reject some of the patriarchal notions of what women and girls should be doing and should be able to do in our family, while also paradoxically trying to conform to the notion of a nice girl, what a nice girl and a nice woman should be like. But you still can reject some of the notions, but you're not allowed to overstep some of the boundaries. And that can be quite tricky to know which boundaries am I allowed to step out of and not others. I think in in Britain, there's been a culture of take it on the chin or not show your emotions and keep kind of more the idea of stoicism is respected where where if if you show emotions, it's considered a bit ugly or um, uh, unseemly and and. The idea of resilience is very much linked to not showing your emotions. Again, there's a paradox in who is allowed to show these emotions and not. So we see that footballers can show certain kinds of emotions where they're celebrating. They can, and sportsmen can show certain kind of emotions. But then if you see Andy Murray crying, then he's blasted in the media because he's shown some tears or he's shown some emotion. But we knew that Winston Churchill showed emotions, but he's considered this, this person who led us to victory. There's a difference in, in how how history defines what we do today, how our culture and society is shaped by the books that are read, by the authors that are promoted or encouraged. Even as though as men at, at certain points of time were allowed to show emotions, these were only men of the upper class that were allowed to show emotions. Again, it comes back to our particular social and cultural and political context shapes so much of what we are allowed to express and how we are allowed to express these emotions. Even now we see in politics, men and women are leaders, are judged by different measures. So women have to not show men much emotion because they already carry this kind of threat, stereotype notion of that women are very emotional. So, and that women don't make very good leaders and emotionality is considered as one of the negative points of why they're not perceived to be good leaders. While for men, that can be seen as an empowering thing that, look, he's a man, but he's also sensitive to, we know that we, Barack Obama has talked about it in this way, that he's a sensitive man. But on the other hand, if Hillary Clinton showed any signs of emotion, she was judged for it, that she was being hysterical and that she was being over-emotional. But on the other hand, if they don't show emotions and they're seen as ice cold. So it very much depends on our gender, but also our social and cultural context. Let's move to one of your other books, because obviously uh, Hysterical is not your first book. Talk to us about the findings of your book, Motherhood, uh, which talks about societal attitudes and pressures around women's bodies and, and fertility. And perhaps in the light of the Supreme Court in the US overturning Roe v. Wade, that, that would be an interesting lens through which to look at this. Yes. Once again, those conversations around reproductive choice have become so 
timely and pertinent. And these were not the conversations we were having when I started writing this book way back or late 2019 or even before that. At that time, motherhood was being seen as something, a mundane thing. We don't write about motherhood. There's already everything that we need to talk, write about or talk about motherhood has already been written. I wanted to write this book not just from my experiences of trying to become a mother or becoming a mother, of trying to understand my own body and my own reproductive choices, but also place that experience in a wider social political context about what happens in society. How when we talk about motherhood, when we talk about motherhood, there's also some people who are always being othered in this discussion. So that's why the title of the book is Motherhood with the M in the title. So motherhood, otherhood. So motherhood and womanhood is very much interlinked. And so again, if you step outside those norms or if you're not able to become a mother, first of all, you carry the shame and guilt because your body's not doing what you're expected to do. You are also seen as an outsider by society because you're not conforming to certain maternal feminine attributes of being maternal and nurturing or wanting a child or raising a family. So the notion of choice is very much dependent on who we are again. And that was the book about, about my experiences of growing up, about how there's so much stigma around menstruation, about uh, we how we talk about it, how we talk about these things to our children, how even in our biology textbooks, the way we talk about biology is very much misogynistic. Well, the egg is lying there passively waiting to be fertilized, which is not the case scientifically. How interesting. And then I talk about abortion. I wrote about this when we were not talking about abortion openly. We were not talking about how abortion rights are curtailed and what it does to women. I talked about how women who are incarcerated um, have these rights taken away from them. And we know that this, while we are talking about the Roe v. Wade being overturned and what is doing to society and what it's going to do to women. We know that women who are asylum seekers were already facing these oppressions who were being sterilized against their choice, whose fertility cycles were being monitored, all those kind of things. So the bodies were always being monitored. So this this paradox in how we idolize women's bodies and put them on a pedestal, we gaze at them, we look at them, we display them. But we also stigmatize them and penalize them and monitor them and patrol them all the time. And so this book is about that. It's about how much choice do we have? How much autonomy and agency do we really have as girls, as women over our bodies? And what can we do more as parents, as carers, as educators to create this true autonomy, true agency? And when we think we have choice, are our choice not shaped by what we think is the right choice for us? And while we talk about abortion rights being taken away in the US, it's happened in other countries as well with the rise of the right-wing media and the politics. But we've just seen that in, in the UK from the Foreign Commonwealth website, a statement which said that we will uphold women's autonomy, bodily autonomy and sexual and reproductive rights has been removed from the website. Nobody's talking about it. So while we think that this is something, again, happening over the pond or happening in other countries, it's not far off from us that these rights could be taken away from us, that our previous generations, women, have fought so much for these rights. Again, in this discussion, we don't talk about trans women. Again, we don't talk about how language in me in medical and health professionals also excludes certain people and how it disadvantages certain people because of the way we look or the way we are, where we are. We really have to think about what kind of norms have we internalized that 
uh, we are imposing on our children as we bringing them up today and f- are they really do they really understand the notion of choice and autonomy and agency wow you've got two young daughters yourself do you find yourself going through that thought process when you are you know in raising them so i have an older daughter who's non binary came out recently as non binary and i raised them mostly as single parent um yes it, while raising them i was aware of a lot of these issues even though i was rejecting a lot of patriarchal notions and these notions of hierarchy and what women are supposed to do i also internalized certain things that because of my bring upbringing and how how i that might have impacted my parenting and i've reflected a lot on that over the years so now i have young twins who are girls as well and i think about that quite a lot about while we think that i want to empower them to have autonomy over their bodies am i letting them make choices for their bodies or not am i giving them the message that their bodies are their own or they understand their bodies so if for example for simple example my child the other day said something like i have a lot of pain in my leg and somebody else rejected the idea is like saying oh you don't have pain it's not it's not hurting i was trying to explain to them she's very young but i was trying to explain them nobody can tell you what you're feeling and how your body is what your body is experiencing you have to trust your instinct and you have to know what your body is doing or feeling at that time i i want to encourage this notion of choice but sometimes we fall back on those old patterns so i realized two days ago i was thinking can i wear this to the beach i was wearing something asking my husband and my 6 year old said but you can wear anything you want mummy you told me that you can wear whatever you like that's the most important thing i love it when they surprise you they are listening <laughs> and then they do take on board the things you say to them you just have to remember to take that on board yourself as well oh wonderful uh praga i could talk to you all day but i i know that we are recording as you are on holiday with said children so I will just say thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a brilliant conversation. Um and I would recommend your book Hysterical Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions to everybody listening. Thank you. Professor Pragya Agarwal, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much Kathy. This was wonderful. Lovely to speak with you. It was a real privilege to speak about unconscious bias and gender equality and intersectionality with somebody who has done so much research on it who is a true expert in the academic intellectual sense of the word and what pragya's chat has left me with is an awful lot of food for thought we've seen the way liz trust for example was treated for the clothes she wore and the way she behaved etc so we do see the proof in front of us of the way men and women are treated differently for behaving in the same way but the other thing that's really stayed with me is how these biases are present within our own homes and how we need to be the ones that are also taking action join me on the next episode of raise that up when i'll be with documentary maker ellie flynn my most recent documentary affected me in a way that i haven't felt before it was an undercover investigation uh, where i put myself in quite a vulnerable situation and feeling that firsthand had a real impact on me you know i am putting myself in sometimes dangerous situations and i think it's important to do that in order to show that these situations exist and in order to report on this kind of behavior and on these issues i'll see you then Think again one of I the things that's what we're giving isn't it as a hell we're giving our love raise her up